0: Well, if you haven't been with us for this past weekend, you're in for a treat. Uh, I'm very humbled to have Dr. Mike Stollard here uh, to share the word with us. Uh, He teaches at the PhD level in many different seminaries. Uh, He is also the International Ministries Director for Friends of Israel. Uh, He is the head of the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics. He's written a fantastic commentary on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. He's currently working on writing a commentary from Revelation. Uh, You do everything, don't you? It's good. Church planter? Yeah. Church planter, pastor for many years, songwriter. I'm listening to his CD right now to help get doctrine in people's minds. It's great. So very, very thankful to have him here. Would you welcome him? What's that? aerospace Aerospace engineer? What? Anything else? Girl Scout cookie champion? I don't know. Um, I think I'd rather be the fried chicken champion of the world myself. It's good to be with you. Uh, You know, I've enjoyed uh, the conference, and um, I'm I'm sad that Paul Benoit was not able to come due to illness, and I wanted to renew my friendship with him from uh, conferences uh, we've shared in the past. Uh, But I'm happy to take his place and do my best uh, to uh, speak to you here today. In fact, I've enjoyed my time so much, I'd come back next week. Uh, But my wife won't let me, so uh, that's where we are on that. I wanted to share a little bit, you know, my terms, my ministry as the International Director of the Friends of Israel. Uh, I oversee all the international workers uh, that we have. And right now, we are in nine countries, Uh, and of course, we have a very... uh, narrow scope in terms of our ministry. Uh, We, you know, I like to say it in two basic things. We do outreach to Jewish people. Uh, That includes a lot of things. That includes standing up against anti-Semitism, which is roaring its head right now. Uh, It includes social, uh, you know, material needs, medicine and food and things like that to the poor Jewish people, especially in Eastern uh, Europe, but also with sharing the gospel with them and trying to reach them for Jesus. But then we also have a ministry to the church. We want to teach the church what the Bible says about Israel. And let's face it, I think you guys, if I've captured your spirit well, uh, you believe in a future for national Israel, and you believe that the Jews are still God's chosen national people. But you're in a minority among churches in the United States and in the world. Most churches uh, don't believe that at all, and they have thrown away Israel. Well, we teach the churches to go back the other way and uh, try to get in and say, you know, you need to understand the Bible still teaches there's a future for the Jewish people nationally as well as spiritually if they come to Christ. And they will come to Christ at the end of the Trib and, and as a nation. And uh, so we're excited about that ministry. In those nine countries, those are Israel. We have church plants that we uh, oversee there in Israel. Uh, We have about five workers or so that we support there. And then we have uh, Ukraine. We have one lady we just started in Ukraine. And then we have five in Poland. We have some of the exciting things. We have, until COVID stopped it, we have summer Christian camps for Jewish children. We bring Jewish children from Belarus and Ukraine to Poland and teach them for nine days. We do six of those camps. About ten children come to Christ every summer, they tell me. Uh, And the, the Jewish leaders come with them, the Jewish agencies or the Jewish synagogue people or whoever. And our people, for 35 years, have built up such a good relationship with the Jewish people that the Jewish people will do that and consider it a good thing. Even though they know this is a Christian group, it's a remarkable thing, one of the most remarkable things in missions I have ever seen. Uh, We're also in Germany, we're in France, and we're in England. Of course, we have a lot of people in the United States, but I don't have anything to do with that. Okay, so that's not my job. That's somebody else's job. And Paul Sharp is one of the United States guys. Then we're in Argentina. We have a medical clinic down there. It is probably our most evangelistic work. Those medical, we have three medical doctors. They just have a knack of taking physical illness and using it with people. I guess, you know, if you're a captive audience laying on a table and the doctor's there, he can turn the conversation to spiritual things a lot easier. Uh, And they just, they want people to the Lord. Uh, Every month people are coming to Christ at the Argentina clinic and they do, uh, after they they help people physically. They have Bible reunions, they call them, and they, all the people come back when they have uh, Bible studies. And then we are in New Zealand, and we're in Australia. We have five guys in Australia. So the ministry is worldwide. The sun never sets on the Friends of Israel, as it said, and uh, we're excited to be part of that ministry. And I travel all over the world, uh, at least I did until COVID came. Uh, so we're hoping that the world will open up again so that we can begin to do that. Uh, labor of love in that way. Well, uh, today I'm going to speak on Revelation 21. The notes are in uh, the bulletin that was given to you. The handouts, I'm not going to use PowerPoint today. One of our Polish workers has a saying. He says, no PowerPoint, no problem. Uh, We'll just do it the old-fashioned way before we had that, you know, and... uh, so you've got your notes, and I'm going to walk through the first eight verses of Revelation 21. I, I labeled that God's greatest promise. In fact, my very first sermon that I ever preached to a church, now, in November of 1976, when I'm showing my age here, I preached to a youth group, what was supposed to be a 45-minute message, and it ended up 20 minutes. And the youth pastor had to fill the rest of the time up with testimonies. Uh, and then in February, after that, I preached my first message to a church. And I preached on my favorite verse in the Bible, which is Revelation twenty-one four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I preached on that. I have a recording of that. That I will never let you listen to. And I'm hoping today it'll be a little bit better than I was back in 1977. Uh, But a couple things at the start, too, just in terms of interpretation, I want to lay out for you. There are some dispensationalists, that is, in our camp, pre-trib, pre-mill guys, who hold to a little interpretation of Scripture. That is, they they have textually-based meaning. They don't go searching for hidden meanings, uh, hidden in the mind of the reader, in the text, but some of some of us in our camp see that this this chapter, the beginning part of chapter 21 and the New Jerusalem coming down and all of that, is really talking about the millennium. That Randall Price yesterday alluded to that. He holds to that view. He was here at the conference. I don't hold that view. I see this as starting in verse one. I see this as the eternal state and not the millennium, because that's. So just understand how we're going on this. So you have have the rapture of the church, and then uh, probably a a short gap, and then you have the signing of the treaty that starts the seven-year tribulation period. At the end of the tribulation period, Jesus returns to earth, puts his feet on the Mount of Olives, starts the earthly millennial kingdom that lasts for precisely a thousand years. I take that literally. It's not an indefinite period of time. And then at the end of that, there's some things that happen, uh, but then transition is made into the eternal state, and I see this chapter in chapter 22, except for the epilogue at the end as a reference to the eternal state. Now, second thing, caveat here. If I were to ask you this question, I wonder what your answer would be. If I ask you how long is God's coming kingdom, what would you say? Okay, I appreciate that answer. I used to always ask my students that when I was a seminary professor, and uh, some of them would say a 1,000 years. Well, you understand how they get that, right? It's in Revelation 20. He's going back and reign for 1,000 years. And then I would take him over to Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where he says the kingdom is forever. The Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, receives a kingdom that's forever. In fact, in verse 18, it uses even strongly the strongest way in Hebrew to say this thing will never end, to the forever of the forevers. It's just strong. I take them there and make them think about that. And then if, if they answer the question, it's forever, I take them over to Revelation 20 and say, well, what's this 1,000-year stuff about? I'm not sure we've handled some of this well. John Calvin, you've heard of him, right, John Calvin? Everybody here love John Calvin? He's a brother in Christ. We love him. Okay. And, and he's, he's a little better in his theology today than he was back then. Uh, But he was an amillennialist, and he rejected premillennialism. He rejected that Jesus was coming back to set up an earthly kingdom for a 1,000 years. He rejected that. And the reason he rejected it, or one of the reasons he rejected it, he said it very clearly, is that the premillennialists, you and me, limit the kingdom to a 1,000 years, and everybody knows it's forever. That's how he was thinking. And sometimes we talk and write as if that that comes across that way. And we say, okay, the the millennium fulfills all the promises to Abraham and David. Wait a minute. How can a thousand years fulfill a forever promise? You see, the promise, the prophets knew nothing about the thousand years. They looked down the corridor of time and they saw a kingdom that was a forever kingdom. So I think we haven't handled some of these things well. And so I just want you to understand, when we make the shift from the millennium of chapter 20 to the eternal state, the kingdom doesn't stop. And here's how I say it. The millennium is the kickoff party for God's forever kingdom. We're going to have a thousand-year celebration. There's going to be a lot of other things happening, and God frames certain things. We wouldn't be able to solve some naughty problems out of Isaiah 65 if we didn't know about that thousand-year period, but that's another sermon. So that is as a background for what we're going to talk about today. This is God's greatest promise. That's my language. He doesn't say that. He doesn't label this. This is my greatest promise. Here it is. It's what I call the greatest promise. I can't think of anything better than any any promise in the Word of God than what's in this chapter. So let's get into it. Uh, When we come to verse 1... The new heaven and earth, that's Romans 2 in your outline. It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. So you, first off, you're confronted with the idea of the new heaven. Now, the word heaven is used in three different ways in the Bible. Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven. I take that as the abode of God, where God lives. But then there's heaven as the cosmic space, where the stars exist. And then there's heaven as the atmosphere, where the birds fly. And you can actually find passages where heaven is used of those three things. Now, heaven is the abode of God. Wait a minute, isn't God everywhere all the time? We went over this yesterday. Isn't God everywhere all the time? Yes. But he chooses to localize his presence in certain ways. Uh, for example, the pillar of fire, right? That's a localized presence of the burning bush, the cloud, the Shekinah glory, the tabernacle. He localized his presence and showed up there at the temple. He localized his presence For Christians today, he localizes his presence in the collective gathering of the saints, but also inside our bodies. Our bodies are the temple of the Lord. He localizes his presence. He localized his presence permanently in the incarnation with Jesus. So he has localized his presence in many ways, and one of those ways he localizes his presence is this abode, the thing he calls where he lives. Is it a real place outside the universe or is it in the universe? Uh, you'll have to ask him. But one day it's going to be clearly part of our world order. Okay. Now, so that, the heaven here is probably not that. The New Jerusalem is that. It's going to be later. So here it's probably referring to cosmic space or in verse 1 or the, the atmosphere and then the new earth. Now, that raises the question, new atmosphere, new earth. Is God going to destroy the old earth, the earth we're on now, just vaporize it and give us a new planet? Or is he going to renovate the old planet and produce something new out of it? Okay. So that's why I say in the notes, purification or annihilation. And 2 Peter 3 uses very strong language. It talks about the, el- mel- uh, the elements melting with fervent heat. And uh, there's a debate about whether that's at the beginning of the millennium or at the end. I lean toward it being at the end. And as, that's part of the discussion of uh, the purification. Or is, does he annihilate the old planet and just create a new one for us? Well, I don't think it's annihilation. I think it's purification. It's renovation. Why? Because if he just destroyed the old earth and gave us a new one, the old earth would not be redeemed. And the Bible tells us in Romans 8 that all creation will be redeemed. God's going to redeem it. He's not going to throw it away. So the old earth will be made brand new in the same way that your resurrection body is the same body you died in. Now, I know you could have been vaporized and your ashes scattered and all kinds of things, but God knows how to get it. He knows where your DNA is. And the old body will be brought back to life and made new and better and different than the old body. It's the same way. That's a good analogy. Uh, The new earth will be brought out of the old earth and purified by fire and made brand new. That's why I don't listen to these guys, and they mean well, but we're, we're really so inundated with creation care, mainly through the influence of the environmental movement, some of whom are wackos, but some of them are not. Some are very serious, and there is a doctrine of creation care in the Bible. We are supposed to, you know, not treat animals mean, etc. I mean, there's a lot of things the Bible says. I did a paper on that one time in my own PhD program. So there is a role for that uh, to uh, to play, but I don't listen. Okay, we've got to treat creation well now because this is where we're going to live. No, I'm not advocating let's just treat it like trash, but we, that's not a concern. Why? Because God's going to purify it by fire at the end of the millennium, so we don't need to think in those terms. But notice something else. The old, you know, the first heaven, first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Doesn't that disappoint you? I don't know. This is Wisconsin. You're not near any. Are you near any seas? Yeah, you're near. Well, you're close. So does that mean no more oceans? What in the world does that mean? Well, I... Personally, I don't think it means no oceans. Later on, we know that there is a river and there's water. There's running water. So I think it makes sense. If you go back to the creation, the original creation, there was water on the planet. I know Noah's flood made it worse in terms of volume, uh, but there was water on the planet. And so that's part of God's original design. So I don't think he's meaning here no bodies of water existing anywhere. So what does he mean? This could be symbolic. You know, it's okay for us when we say we hold to literal interpretation. It doesn't mean that we don't believe in symbols or figures of speech. It means we take them at face value and we don't go searching for hidden meanings. It's in the text. And so what would be? Earlier in the book, in uh, Romans 13, in Revelation 13, the beast, the Antichrist, comes out of the Sea. If you're standing on the Mediterranean, it's kind of an image. You're looking out at the, in Israel, looking out at the Mediterranean Sea and out that way, you know, coming out of that way, coming from the sea. is the Antichrist, the, the old, the new Roman Empire that kind of idea. And also, he's, he's representing the sea of nations that oppose God. And what happened in the last chapter, the end of uh, Revelation 20, before you get to the great white throne judgment, you have... Satan let loose, and he deceives nations. And there's the last rebellion against God, the last rebellion of the Sea of Nations who don't like him. And so it could mean that there's no more rebellion of the nations. That's a possibility. I don't think it means no bodies of water. So those of you who like the ocean, you can relax. Now we move to the New Jerusalem in verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now this is the abode of God. This is, I believe, where God lives. It's the home of Christ. Uh, it's it's the home of God. It's our home throughout eternity once this comes. But notice uh, that it seems to be a... a change of location for God. Coming down out of heaven from God, the city comes, and a little bit later in verse 3, we're going to see that God, his presence, is going to increase in our experience. And so he's basically moving his address. The abode of God is moving from up there to down here. Now, notice the description here. It describes it as holy, set apart, sacred. And of course, Jerusalem has always been that, set apart as a special city and set apart as a sacred place because of all that's happened there and God's cho- choosing of that place. And the new Jerusalem is not going to change that. It's still going to be that holy place. But notice The last part, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I think that expresses the idea of beauty. Now, let me ask you a question Have you ever seen an ugly bride at a wedding? Now, if, if you have seen an ugly bride, do not tell me. I don't want you to mess with my mind. I've, I've done a lot of weddings. I've attended a lot of weddings. And, uh, and I've never seen an ugly bride. I mean, there's a reason they call you gals the fairer sex. And that's because you are. And somehow you have some skills uh, to really make yourself look nice on that grand day. Of wedding I don't say you have to get married to look good, but but you just have that ability. and so when I'm up at the front as the pastor about to officiate this wedding, you know and then the, the, groom, the, the groom comes out with his, his guys and we're waiting for you know everybody comes out we're waiting for the bride, right That's the moment, right? And then she's standing at the back of the room, and she comes out and, he, and I always when, she, when you can first see her, I always look over at the groom. I want to see the twinkle in his eye when he sees her. I want you to capture that moment. That's how God wants us to feel right here about this city that is our future. This city that is for us is as beautiful as that bride about to walk down the aisle, adorned for her husband. Now, when you look at the rest of the description, come down to verse 9. And one of the reasons, by the way, that I don't see this as relating to the millennium, and also some people who say this is talking about the millennium, see the, the city doesn't descend all the way to the earth. It kind of stays up in the sky. And, and they're trying to keep Israel and the church separate. That's really what they're trying to do. I don't think it's necessary to do that. And one of the reasons I, I think this is the eternal state is that the whole rest of the chapter uh, kind of uh, expounds upon uh, verses 1 to 7. But notice the description of the beginning of verse 9. I want to go through this. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, I don't think this is an equation. Some people take it that way. Bride equals church equals the city. That's not really what he's saying. He's, going to, he's showing the place where the bride lives. I'm going to show you the bride. Let me go take you to the place where they, she lives so you can see her. That's the idea. Okay. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates it, and the gates uh, had 12 angels and the names were written on them which are those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold-measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. And the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, crystallite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. I had to practice to read that. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. Do you know what that means? That means the clams in the eternal state are pretty big. <laughs> and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Streets of gold and pearly gates. Preachers didn't make that up, it comes right out of the Bible. I take it at face value. God's making something nice for us. I know some of you want your log cabin out in the woods by the creek. Yeah, No, I want my golden condo. That's what I want. <laughs> and I saw no temple in it, etc. And he goes on, but this description of the city, the magnificent beauty of the city as a bride adorned for her husband coming out of heaven. And the point is coming to earth. That takes us to verse 3 and the presence of God. In verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. That's why it has to come all the way down, I think. And he shall dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be among them. The full presence of the triune God. Now, if you go back to the millennium, the thousand years, where's Jesus? On the throne throne of David in Jerusalem. Where's the Father? During the millennium, where's the Father? The Father is still in heaven. In the millennium, we can still pray, our Father who art in heaven. Well, oh, we'll even pray that in the eternal state, but heaven came down. Our Father, the Father's in heaven, Christ is here, the Spirit's everywhere. They're all everywhere in a sense. But you understand how the picture is given. And then, Now here, what's different? Here, it's the fullness of the triune God that comes down. And you and I will experience the presence of God like nothing we've ever experienced. And you've had moments... C.S. Lewis called them uh, surprise-by-joy moments, uh, where you've had unique experiences of God's presence in your life as a believer. You've had, you know, God didn't leave you during the mundane moments of life, but there are more of those than there are the special moments, but none of those will match this. We will be inundated with His presence. Just think about that. In that day, Jeremy will not have to come bother me with any Bible questions. (laughs) He can just walk right over to Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit and ask. You see later in the chapter, that's true, verse 22 through 26, and I saw no temple in it. Why? The temple represented the presence of God, but his presence is so full there's no need. That's what it says. Uh, For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The presence of God is so full. And the nation shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, the gates shall never be closed, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, etc. It's a very beautiful picture of God changing His address and His full presence overwhelming us. But then we come to Uh, the top right column of my outline on the page there, what I am calling God's greatest promise. No more curse, verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 4. And it's interesting, it comes right after. God's full presence is necessary, I think, to remove the curse completely. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, And there shall no longer be any death. There shall be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This is God's action to keep his greatest promise, to make all things right. You know, this is the moment that I wish God would hit the fast forward button and get us there. There's going to be a lot of time. I mean, there's a thousand and seven years at least between now and then if the rapture were to happen today. And I just long in my heart and my soul for that time when this will be true for everyone. Notice chapter 22, verse 3. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of the God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads the closeness of our relationship and the presence of God removes the curse. And I want you to know that's more than Adam and Eve ever had. See, they had bodies that could sin. They had bodies that could die. You and I are going to have bodies that can't sin and bodies that can't die. And we're going to experience the full presence of God, I think, beyond what they even experienced in the garden before the fall. I can't wait. But then we ask the question, what things will not be in God's coming kingdom? And I'm thinking primarily of the eternal state here when we get to that aspect of his forever kingdom. What are some of the things? And I made a list of about 40 things. I want to to give these to you. I put some humorous ones in to keep you awake. Okay, no shots at the doctor's office. No COVID vaccines. No jabs. No more doctors. No more hospitals. No dentists. No root canals. No funeral parlors. No funeral sermons. No funeral directors. No surgery. No bad reports from checkups. No bald heads. Either that or everybody will be made bald. Uh, No teeth that slip. No walking with a limp. No wheelchairs. No high blood pressure. No Dr. Atkins diet. No keto. No loneliness, no bitterness and anger, no stupidity, no road rage, no long lines at the airport, no Al-Qaeda or ISIS terrorists, no Afghanistan issues, no car accidents, no telephone calls in the middle of the night, no nursing homes, no rebellious children who bring sorrow to your heart, no abusive parents. No parents who don't understand you. No Democrats. (laughs) Do you know the next one on my list? No Republicans. No Green Party. No Libertarians. No politicians. That probably means no lawyers. No IRS. No serial killers, no wasps, at least no waspless with stingers. No spinach or broccoli that tastes like spinach or broccoli. That's all going to taste like fried chicken or chocolate ice cream. No dog bites, no snake bites, no sprained ankles, nor th- no thorns on the roses. No husbands that walk out on you. No divorce. If I understand it right, no marriage no broken engagements, no fights with your boss, no pink slips where you lose your job, no monthly bills, no bad relationships that make you cry, no trashy music, no bad TV programs, no bad movies, no bad language, no pornography, no perversion, no temptation, no bad thoughts, no pets that die, no tornadoes, no forest fires, no hurricanes, No armies, no bombs, no missiles, no jet fighters, no goodbyes. No tears of sorrow, tears of joy might be allowed. No death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain, no more broken hearts. That is God's greatest promise to us. And he says it this way very simply. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And then he says in verse 5, He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. You can take it to the bank. God's greatest promise is going to be fulfilled. But then we come to the last segment, which is the citizens of the city. Verses 6 through 8 deal with this. Uh, And there's a positive and a negative. In the positive, let's look at that in verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Remember Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. That's like saying A to Z in English. And I will give to the one who thirsts. Notice that description. I will give to the one who thirsts. I think it's talking about spiritual thirst. So who are the people who make it into this place, who who get the fulfillment of verse 4 and no more curse? Those who have thirsted, it says, and I'll give to them who thirst, and they have sought spiritually to come to God. And they obviously, in the context of the whole book, They come to God through faith in Christ. Notice how it says, from the spring of the water of life without cost. That's freely. Okay, let me say it this way. That's free grace. Did you know there's no such thing as a bragger in heaven? If you think that you deserve to go to heaven, You're not going there. The only people who go to heaven are those who have admitted to God they don't deserve it and have just cast themselves at his mercy through Jesus. You see, there are no braggers in heaven. We could not do enough good deeds to buy one splinter of the cross that Jesus died on. It is freely given to us from God. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Don't ever forget that. Now, our good deeds matter for other purposes, but not for us to have a presence in this place that's being described. But also describes these particular ones as overcomers. Verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So, who is an overcomer? That word used earlier in chapters 2 and 3, quite a bit in the book of Revelation. In 1 John, John the Apostle, who also wrote the book of Revelation, describes it as uh, the overcome, what overcomes the world, even our what? Faith. So, it's faith in Christ in other words being coming a believer an overcomer is a believer a believer is an overcomer that's how he's using the language and so he describes it in those terms he who overcomes shall inherit these things all these things that we've described in this chapter is received by every single believer also a little bit later in chapter 21 it gives another way If you look at verse 27, nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. In other words, there's no sin in the new Jerusalem, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. God keeps good books, and he knows those who are his. And so those who have been saved, those who are part of the elect, as we might say it that way, known by God, are those who are citizens of this wonderful city, the abode of God which has come down to earth and plastered us with the presence of God that ends the curse. Have you trusted Christ? Is your name in the Lamb's Book of Life? Have you trusted him by grace through faith? If you haven't, let me just urge you to consider his claims upon your life. Trust Jesus who died on the cross, taking away your sin. And if you'll trust him and accept what he has done for you, God will take your sin that Jesus died for. he'll, He'll consider it wiped away, and he will give you the righteousness that Jesus possessed. And what does that mean? That means God will look at you as if you're Jesus. Now, he knows you're not. God's smart. He knows you're not. But he's going to treat you like you're Jesus if you've trusted him. You're in union with Christ when you get saved. And God forgives you of all your sin. It is a story of amazing grace. But sadly... Not everyone will be in that number. Notice verse 8. The list, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We saw that described graphically at the end of chapter 20. Now, you say, well, wait a minute, Uh, Brother Mike, there are times in my life as a Christian I've been cowardly and there are times I've struggled with not believing. I've done abominable things. I don't think I've murdered anybody. Immoral sorcerer, not sure what that means. He said, idolatry, yeah, I've kind of worshipped other things, maybe myself, and I've lied. Does that mean I'm not a citizen of the city and I'm a citizen of the lake of fire instead? No, that's not what that means. What it means is the people who have who are lost, the people who have rejected God's solution to sin will stand before God as they are. They won't have a backup like we have. If we're saved, well, our backup, he's actually more than a backup, is Jesus. Because what I have and you have, if we're saved, even though we're saved, it's not enough. That's why we have to have Jesus. It's his righteousness, his perfect record. You see, God doesn't just weigh good and bad. So you have more good than bad, you make it. That's not the way that works. You've got to be perfect. And I can tell by looking at each one of you that you're not. Then all you have to do is call my wife and she'll tell you I'm not. Okay. We're not perfect people, but God demands that. You can't let sin coexist with his eternal presence. It all has to be dealt with. That's why Jesus came to die, to take away our sin, so that we could get a perfect record and stand before God, cleansed of all of our sin. And so we come, and we don't come bragging because it's not of us. We come in humble faith, trusting Christ and Him alone. But these people will have to stand before God. If they're unbelievers, they'll have to account for these things in their lives, on their own, without any help. And, of course, that leads them to their destiny. Revelation 21, verse 27, again, we read it before, uh, you know, mentions the unclean, those who practice abomination and lying, never coming into the city. And 2215 also says, outside the city there are dogs and sorcerers and immoral persons, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. Some people think that's a, that means it's a millennium and outside the city there's these things. No, I just think it means there's no such thing as these things in the city. And the people who are these things are lost without God. And their city, their destiny is the lake of fire. If we believe these things as Christians, and we should because they're in the text of the Bible, it should affect how we live. For one thing, you should not fret about your own destiny. You shouldn't be a wart. You should have full assurance of your faith. I know some people honestly struggle with that. But you need to just trust the Lord and live in joy. See, if you live in joy, you're free. You have have assurance and eternal security, and you have the ability out of joy to focus on other people instead of yourself. See, if you're worried about falling into sin and not making it or losing your salvation, you've got to spend time on yourself. You have to concentrate on not stepping in a ditch in your life. But we don't worry about that. Yeah, we worry about ditches. We try to walk around them instead of fall into them. But we're free to focus on other people because we don't have to be so focused on ourselves and our own salvation because it's already been taken care of by Christ. So that's one of the implications of this and and just the general joy of being a believer. The negative part of that is there are people we know and we love who right now, if if this was decided right now, their destiny would be the lake of fire. Shortly after I became a Christian in 1974, I had a dream. It's one of those vivid dreams that you never forget. You have dreams like that. I've had a few of those. Most of them evaporate after, you know, half a second. But this one I remember. I dreamed that I was at the last judgment. Now, remember, I'm a young Christian, and I don't know all the various judgments and everything in the Bible. I just picked this big giant field on some planet. You know, we're all there. These are the people that made it to heaven. It's a big crowd. And in my dream, I'm going from person to person asking about a loved one of mine. Have you seen them? And nobody's seen them. And I go through my dream over and over and over again not finding that person. And when I woke up, I had such a feeling of dread. That person I've been praying for since 1974. And I'm praying that person will come to Christ before it's too late. And all of us need to take seriously the commands of Christ to share our faith, to let people know there is a heaven that we need to desire and there is a hell that needs to be shunned. And let's not fail those that God has called us to reach. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your written word. I thank you for your greatest promise. And I thank you that you've made such great things our future and that you laid them out there to give us hope that we might live in this horrible world at times still with great encouragement that we can endure knowing uh, that day comes after night and the goodness comes after the bad. And we're grateful for that. And Lord, help us to use this to motivate us to reach other people with your message. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.